Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And with returning guests, David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. David and Rebecca, we have brought you here on the verge of your trip to the mountains because the Telluride Film Festival is almost upon us, which is really exciting. We are releasing this episode as the Telluride lineup is finally announced. Uh, It's kept secret every year, so we finally get to talk about it and what you guys and Richard are expecting to see up in the mountains. Um, The Venice Film Festival, as you listen to this, is already underway. There are beautiful people on boats. Uh, Festival season is happening for real again, Um, you know, in slightly altered ways, but it's happening after Telluride was canceled last year. So really excited to talk about Telluride and Venice and the festival season ahead. Um, But first, we do have a new movie that we want to talk about first, which is Worth, which is premiering on Netflix this week. So we'll talk about Worth, we'll talk about festivals, um, and have a lot of movies for you guys to all watch. Um, So let's get to Worth first, because Richard, you reviewed this at Sundance 2020, which I'm not sure if your memory goes back that far, but you did write a review of this. It's it's on VF.com. You can read it, right? Yes, it's up. It's something of a rave. Um, I was really into that movie when I saw it. Yeah. So you had you had saw it then. It got picked up by Netflix, either I think right like, during the festival or right after, and then basically fell off the face of the earth for a really long time. Um, Netflix is releasing it this Friday, uh, timed somewhat to the anniversary, the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, which is coming right up. Um, and I finally got the chance to watch it after you've been raving about it for so long. And Joanna, um, I know you were really eager to see it as well. And I think, you know, having talked to you about it, Richard and David, I know you were a fan too. I think the question for all of us was like, why does it feel like this is a movie coming on Netflix that barely exists? Because it's great. It's a great yeah. movie. Yeah. And, and when it premiered at Sundance, it didn't get enough of the raves it needed and it didn't sell. And it just kind of languished for a while before Netflix snapped it up and now we're mm-hmm. releasing it either appropriately or maybe a little cynically to time to the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. But that release schedule means that it's kind of going to get buried again, I think, which is a shame because there's so much there to like. Um, The subject matter is difficult, um, but it's supposed to be. And the performances are, I think, top to bottom, some of the best that each actor has done, at least in recent memory, from Michael Keaton to Stanley Tucci to Laura Benanti, who 
the, the, the latter two, Tucci and Benanti, should absolutely be in supporting actor conversations this year. And yet I don't think they will be. Uh, David, you had seen Worth. I don't know if it was at Sundance, but you've been kind of a, a longstanding fan of it as well, right? Yeah, I saw it at Sundance. And I, I remember coming out of that screening and expecting it to be one of the big breakouts of the movie we'd be talking about for a 2020 award season. Um, of course, other Back when we happen- thought there would be a normal. <laughs> oh, yes, I was say, other award other things happened after that as well. But you know, that Sundance fielded a lot of big Oscar contenders, including Minari and Promising Young Woman. Um, I, I think it it was a real victim in many ways of the pandemic and and a movie like that not really having any place to go since I think a kind of traditional specialty theatrical distribution would have made sense for it. And then there was none of that uh, in Mm. 2020, really. And uh, I I think Netflix releasing it when they are, I completely agree with Richard. (laughs) um, There's an an element of it that feels appropriate, but there's also an element that feels quite cynical to me. And, And more broadly... I just feel like this movie does deserve a bit more of a push than they're evidently giving it. And um, Michael Keaton, to me, would have been pretty clearly in the best actor conversation in addition to the supporting uh, performances. And I also loved Amy Ryan in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, I hope people check it out and I hope it does get more of a life than maybe Netflix is expecting at this point. For me, I couldn't not think of Spotlight while watching this. You've got yeah. Michael mm-hmm. Keaton doing a Boston accent. You've got him and Stanley Tucci both in it. It's a really kind of similar, like, procedural, somber story about people in business casual wear in an office, uh, but with a lot of heft to it and a lot of, like, you know, really deep emotions buried under all of these logistics and numbers. And I just, I can't, I can't really fathom why Netflix isn't willing to treat it like a spotlight, like something that deserves that level of attention. Well, it's really tough because so uh, the double tragedy of this is like the the long road that this film had in the first place mm-hmm. to even Sundance 2020, which is that it was like a 2008, I think, blacklist script that Max Bornstein wrote. And then Max Bornstein went on to make all these Godzilla movies. And then he took his Godzilla money and like made his blacklist like script finally, uh, which is, you know, based off of, and I don't think we've said exactly what this movie is about, but it's based off of Ken Feinberg's book about who was a person who was put in charge of, um, I don't know if I'm going to use this word correctly, adjudicating uh, a lot of the the uh, 9-11 fund to survivors and figuring out how to compensate, you know, family members of those who lost their lives on 9-11. And the word worth has to do with this idea of calculating what is the worth of a lost human life. And that's, you know, so it's like, yeah, really heavy material. And it's, I, you know, I watched it at my desk, which I'm not thrilled that that's how I watched it, but I watched it at my desk yesterday. I cried on my keyboard at several times, but I was also like, this is a movie I really wish I were watching in a theater mm. so that I, I couldn't possibly be distracted at any point because like with Spotlight, which I saw at a film festival, you know, like you want to be just sort of completely in that world and not drawn out of it by, you know, something dinging on your phone or whatever. And so, you know, like all movies that premiere on Netflix, I worry that it won't land with the same impact it would have had in the theater, even though it made me cry. Like, I feel like I would have felt even stronger if I had seen it in a theater. So, And you were committed to paying attention to it and really sinking into it. And, you know, you can imagine a lot of people being like, okay, wait, there's that Bob Ross thing that I hear is kind of juicy. I'm going to flip over to that instead. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I've always been a little skeptical of, of the Netflix model when it comes to releasing a film that I feel like demands profound emotional and intellectual attention do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like Mm -hmm. so yeah 
I totally agree with Joanna. Like, I did not go to Sundance, and I'm really sad I missed this film there because the feeling of discovery is like exactly what you want with a film like this. And now, you know, when we were talking about this film, I still did not have it on my radar when it was about to come out because with Netflix, you just cannot keep up with the amount of volume and the amount of films they're releasing and the they're really selective about what they give sort of a big push to especially when it comes to award season so i think you guys are all on the money that it's just sort of a disappointment but hopefully this podcast will make mm. everyone watch it we <laughs> have that power <laughs> um, i will say though if i'm sarah colangelo who directed the film and Netflix did this to Worth and also did it to my previous film, The Kindergarten Teacher. Mm. Uh, I might think about <laughs> maybe play, uh, you know, trying to place my next film somewhere else. Um, that's not to say that there's anything specifically malicious about the way that Netflix is dealing with Sarah Colangelo herself. But like, it's just an example of like, that is a huge company that um, has to kind of prioritize certain things over others, uh, especially when it comes to award stuff. We'll see what they do with Worth. I, I kind of doubt that they're going to do much, given that they have a lot of other things on on, the, on their way. But, you know, I guess and it's interesting in, in a film that is about, I think, a, in a really measured way, some bits of triumph, but also some other things. Well, people falling through the cracks uh, in, in terms of like how this money is allocated. I guess it's kind of fitting in a way that that like Worth itself, the movie is another thing that it kind of mm. might fall through the cracks. Yeah. And I mean, the thing, uh, Laura Benanti, Benanti, who is like a Broadway legend, an actor I've always really admired, but leveling up in this film in a way that I've never, you know, I've always been like, is Laura Benanti great? Yes. Uh, but this is by far and away the best thing I've ever seen her do. It's incredible. And it, it reminds me of something Mike Hogan used to say on this podcast when you like are watching a film and you can see the Oscar reel and like, <laughs> you know, snot is coming out of her nose. And I'm like, there it is. There's there's the there's a clip that they should be playing at the Oscars for Laura. She's so good. And it's and it's an actual supporting actress role. And it's, it's incredible. So yeah, I, I really hope that people watch this um, and, and our role as major, major influencers. Um, that's a joke. Uh, gets, gets people to watch worth. I was just thinking again about Spotlight and uh, the fact that it was released by Open Road Films, which uh, has a very complicated Wikipedia page, but as the went bankrupt in 2018, like three years after Spotlight wins Best Picture. Um, but, but it was kind of this scrappy player in award season, and it, it was their whole ship. Like, that was what they were putting their effort behind. Uh, and they, they pushed it all the way to Oscar. And you see the power of Netflix in having so many titles. And we're about to talk about a bunch of films that are coming to these festivals that we're really excited about and seem really great that are being released by Netflix. Um, but it doesn't it gives them the ability to have something like this as like a it's not a loss leader. Like it, it makes you wonder why they have it, you know? Like it's not like it's gonna get huge numbers compared to, you know, the next season of British Bake Off or something like that. But like they have a Michael Keaton movie. I don't know. I can't get why they get to keep doing this to to like really great movies. This is my um grudge that I'm holding over private life for like the last three years too. They it felt like a similar trajectory there. <laughs> Like, I guess for all the, the critique around the how this is going to be released or or my concern, like, at least in a pandemic, people will be able to see this safely, which is something Netflix can offer to filmmakers. And and also, you know, the the upshot of a film on Netflix is that, you know, unlike a, a, a minor micro distributor, like, 
there is much wider access to it. So hopefully, like maybe this will have a big word of mouth audience. Like that hasn't really been the the reality so far, but like that's always the hope of a Netflix distribution. That's always, I think, what filmmakers are hoping for with a Netflix distribution. So maybe, maybe. I do like to imagine that the next time Stanley Tucci posts a, a viral Negroni video or something else that uh, people will be like, what does Stanley Tucci have on Netflix that I can watch? And maybe they'll watch Worth and that will um, that will be how it finds its audience. Because why not? Also, one last plug for Michael Keaton's big accent, which I love a big accent from Michael Keaton. Big fan. He's so, so. good in this movie. And as a Boston native, I can say he gets it really right. Yeah. I was going to ask Spotlight. that. Yeah. It feels right because it, it, it is a big accent, but like uh, knowing not much about Boston accents, it felt like the way a real person would talk. Like kind of like how my like high school band teacher talked weirdly. He's like every male administrator at every school I went to. <laughs> like that exact <laughs> accent and tone is, yeah. I was just thinking that like, shouldn't HBO come up with like a really good Sunday night prestige procedural for Amy Ryan and Michael Keaton set in Boston? Yeah. I would, I would watch that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Give it to me. We're, give, we're giving out free ideas over here, people. <laughs> Well, now we're going to move on to our festival season preview. Um, Richard and David and Rebecca, you're all heading to the mountains of Telluride this year. Uh, Richard, you're the only one uh, of us on this call who's been to Telluride before. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been to Venice before as well. We won't have anyone on the ground in Venice this year because, as you might have heard, there's a pandemic going on. Um, but Venice, Venice Film Festival starts a few days before Telluride, but really the two of them together kind of kick off festival season um so going heading to telluride this year richard like it's it was canceled last year it's returning this year as kind of a covid safe bubble uh, are your expectations as high as they've been in previous years yeah i mean i i think it, it helped that i went to Cannes, you know so i kind of got the first you know big public festival uh, under my belt you know um and telluride compared to venice or Cannes or even toronto is such a different animal because it's smaller it's sort of deliberately um, non-commercial, you know, there, I think there are sponsors of the festival, but there's not branding everywhere. There aren't Acura sponsored suites and lounges and all that stuff. You Mm -hmm. know, it really is just for a bunch of people who love movies and have the money to do it, to just spend a long weekend, um, in a beautiful place watching new and exciting things. And so I think that energy and that scope will fit well, uh, in these times, you know, when we have to go through certain protocols and safety is a concern, um, you know, all line waiting at Telluride is outdoors. And, you know, I, I, I think that, like, it'll be kind of rough wearing a mask at 8,000 foot elevation. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'll <laughs> deal with it. Have you been doing it. your wind sprints to train? Uh, yeah, I mean, I live in a fifth floor walk up, so I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good <laughs> condition. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think that, that the environmentally, um, it will feel better maybe than, like, Venice m- would have, you know, with, like, waiting for long lines to get into water buses and all that stuff. And then the films themselves, uh, you know, the, the festival is always well curated by Julie Huntsinger, who runs the festival and other people. It is really exciting. And it's a lot of what is exciting that's going to be at Venice and that at subsequent festivals uh, later in the fall. So I think that, you know, the combination of uh, what I hope it will feel like a safe festival, everyone's required to be vaccinated and COVID tested and good stuff will, will really kick off this fall season uh, with a bang. So we've got. We've got to tell you we're kicking off on Friday over the course of Labor Day weekend. Venice starts a few days earlier. So as you're listening to this, it's going on. Um, but there's a decent amount of overlap between the festivals. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about Power of the Dog because we talked about it very recently on our book club uh, with David. And you can read David's preview piece about it. But it's going to premiere at Venice. It's then going to be at Telluride. It's then going to be at the New York Film Festival, Toronto Film Festival. It does 
on some level to me feel like kind of the the film to watch with a bullet, which is not necessarily what I would have expected a year ago for a Jane Campion Western. But um, are you guys sharing my deep level of, of hype on that one? Oh, yeah. I feel like I have very high expectations from that film, <laughs> for that film. I mean, there's just, you know, in L.A. especially, I think there's just so much buzz about these movies before the festivals. And you just everywhere you go, someone's like, oh, I saw this and I, you know, someone I know saw this and they say it's this. And, and I feel like Power of the Dog definitely has that buzz. So my expectations are high. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Rebecca and I have been trading notes on yeah. so many titles for the past yeah. few weeks. Um, of course, yeah. I have seen Power of the Dog and can't say anything beyond that. But, um, you know, I think that it being, and I believe it is the only premiere um, among the September festivals that is hitting all four stops Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that um, Netflix had done with Marriage Story a few years ago indicates that, you know, they are really um, priming it for a major campaign. And until Don't Look Up Screens, which is the Adam Mm -hmm. McKay film that uh, will surely be in the conversation based on his last two films. Um, It's pretty clearly their top contender, and we know Netflix puts a lot of effort into their contenders, so that uh, does not mean nothing. There are a couple of other big deal titles that are overlapping between Venice and Telluride, which we know varying degrees of things about. Um, The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, also coming from Netflix. David, you also did a preview piece on that. Uh, It'll premiere at Venice and perhaps simultaneously at Telluride, perhaps not quite. But that's a really interesting one to look out for because, you know, a debut film is, uh, can you know, a lot of actors direct movies that no one ever sees again. But this is a really huge platform to debut that as an Elena Ferrante adaptation. Uh, And David, you've given me some hints about Olivia Coleman's presence in that movie that has me personally um, really <laughs> hyped to see it. Yes. Um, and then the third Netflix movie is The Hand of God, which uh, Netflix is also really hot on. That's from Paolo Sorrentino, who did The Great Beauty, which won the Oscar for, at the time, called Best Foreign Language Film. And it's one that they are really high on. I think that they're thinking of it potentially as a Roma, which uh, was Alfonso Cuaron's Netflix movie that, of course, went on to fare very well at the Oscars. It's his most personal movie. Uh, It's set in Naples. And uh, I think that's about all we know right now. But um, they're very high on it. Naples, Italy, not Florida, guys. (laughs) I would watch a Sorrentino film in Naples, Florida. I absolutely would watch that, too. This is his Um, Roma. Then he's going to do his Florida project. (laughs) Um, and then Spencer, uh, the Princess Diana movie with Kristen Stewart, directed by Pablo Lorraine, um, the director of Jackie. And I'm I'm so kind of out of my mind excited about it in a way that I probably need to chill out because, like, it's just a movie. Like, And I know way more about Princess Diana than a single movie is going to be able to include. But <laughs> the marketing for this has been so good. Like, they had that teaser poster where she's, like, you know, crying into her dress. And then the minute-long trailer where Kristen Stewart says, like, two syllables, and everyone's like, oh, my God, her accent. Like, they have played this so well for it to kind of, like, open with a boom at Venice if it's got the goods. They've played it well, but also riskily because that's a lot of buildup, you know? Yes. Um, there's a lot of anticipation. I was I was pleasantly surprised that when that teaser trailer dropped and we hear Kristen, as Diana say, they don't, or whatever, you know, I think that's what she says, right? That's actually <laughs> yeah, the response I got when I asked if they had screenings for the film before <laughs> They don't. In um, that accent, yeah. But, like, I was really pleasantly surprised that, like, the, the general Twitter reaction seemed to be supportive. I kind of thought, you know, as with Jackie, Pablo Lorraine's last biopic film, uh, that with Nellie Portman, 
there were two camps, one that really made fun of what Portman was doing and one that just like wholeheartedly embraced it. There wasn't a lot of middle ground, I felt like. And I was kind yeah. of expecting more of the negative takes to to uh, emerge first, even just based on one tiny line of dialogue. But actually, the opposite was true. It seemed like people were really excited about it. We're into the accent. We're into the casting in a bigger way that when it was first announced, people were like, huh, that doesn't make any sense. But it gradually has seemed to make more sense as more and more snippets and glimpses of the film have been released. Yeah, as someone who I can't remember if I said this on the podcast or just to in, in my actual life that uh, the year that Seaberg and Charlie's Angels came out, I was like, this is going to be Kristen Stewart's year. She's going to have like an Arnie movie. She's going to have a blockbuster. Uh, I, I did it a little too early, but now I feel like it's time. Like she has she's never gotten an Oscar nomination. This does feel like if it's if it's going to get her um, if it's going to do well, it's going to get her directly there. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it also it has the benefit. I think I mentioned this earlier uh, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, that it has the benefit of getting out ahead of the Diana uh, Royals storm that's coming our way this fall, uh, with the Crown and the Diana musical that's going to be uh, allegedly back on Broadway, but also will be a there will be a film version on Netflix. Like, it's mm -hmm. good that like they have at least at the in the festival circuit um, they'll be first, and so. Our Diana of fall 2021 will, um, I think, take the shape of Kristen Stewart more than anyone else. Yeah, I think this crown, the next season of the crown might not come till next year. So they oh, is that right? Okay, well, runway. then maybe it's yeah. just the Diana musical. That, I mean, I, I guess I'm probably the only person excited for that. But <laughs> Oh, please. I'll be there on Netflix whenever it, whenever it shows up. Um, so let's then go to Telluride. Um, there's going to be some titles at Telluride that um, we've seen in other places. Richard, you reviewed Red Rocket at Cannes. Uh, that's the Simon Rex movie from um, Sean Baker that'll be there. Uh, I saw Flea at Sundance, which is really wonderful. It's going to be there. Um, and then a, uh, a lot of big titles that we're just really curious about. So maybe do you guys just want to say, like, what's the thing that you're going to go grab your ticket for first when, when you get the chance? There's quite a few things that I'm dying to see. Um, Cyrano, I did a early preview for us um, on, but I have not seen the full film. I got to peek at some footage, and it, it's Joe Wright's latest, and it starts Peter Dinklage, and it's based on a stage musical that Peter Dinklage's wife had written um, for him based on the classic tale. And it looks, you know, I love a musical, and I love a love story. So it really, it's... It, it's right up my alley. I I haven't heard any buzz either way on it, but it's definitely something I'm really looking forward to checking out. And um, and then I'm I right there with you. Don't worry, we'll we'll <laughs> be gonna, together. We're gonna be the number one and number two Joe Wright fans uh, <laughs> till the end. And then um, and then I think King Richard because it's it's gonna be at Telluride and and that's sort of its world premiere from what I know. I'm really interested in um, seeing it. I have a lot of questions about it, but I, I would be excited if it's a really strong Will Smith performance. Yeah, we talked about King Richard on this podcast briefly, I think, but you want to just give a reminder. I, I, I mentioned to someone who assumed it was an Arthurian movie like The Green Knight, which is fair, oh, uh, but it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's about Serena and Venus Williams and their father and how he sort of shaped their uh, tennis career. So it's it's mostly focused on him, obviously, by the title, because his name is Richard. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it features a performance by Will Smith. And I think we've all sort of been waiting for the Will Smith Oscar return. So mm -hmm. maybe this is it. Or maybe it's yeah. not. And I'm guessing wrong. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's all. That's all we can do this time of year. Yes. Just guess. Yes. Uh, Richard, what about you? What's your priority? 
Well, I mean, Spencer, I, I'm essentially flying to Colorado to see Spencer. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, past that, I, I think I am curious to see how Red Rocket is is uh, received uh, by an American audience. You know, it it was pretty, I think, universally liked at Cannes. Um, but then it didn't win any awards, which people thought maybe it would have. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see that movie kind of come home uh, and, and see what it does and what that does for the, its lead performer, Simon Rex. And then I, you know, uh, I don't know where I am with Mike Mills as a filmmaker. Like, I, I like his movies. I like the ideas in his movies, but they don't always kind of come together for me. Um, but his new one, Come On, Come On, with uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, is certainly intriguing. Um, it seems like it's maybe a little smaller in scale than 20th Century Women. It's, for one thing, that the cast is pretty small and, and not starry. I mean, beyond Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman, it's, a, it's not a lot of, it's not big names. So um, I'm really curious to see what, what that's all about and whether or not Mills um, can kind of re-enter an awards conversation. I mean, obviously Christopher Plummer won uh, an Oscar for beginners, but then 20th Century Women, women um, was, I think, entirely blanked Extremely famously for Annette Bening, yeah. uh, especially for Annette Bening. So we'll see if he can can do it with this one. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who of course is riding high on his uh, Joker win from two years ago. It is nice that Joaquin Phoenix is going to, you know, who Joaquin Phoenix, who through the entire process of promoting Joker, seemed to want to run away from it as fast as possible. That uh, he's kind of following up on it by just making something smaller and like really far away from that, like and, and it, humane. It, hopefully, intrigued. I mean, I think that yes, Mike, Mike, yeah. Mike Bills, if nothing else, like he has a deep empathy for his characters and for people in general. It seems, and I think something that's long put me off of a lot of lauded Joaquin Phoenix performances is that it's just so like aloof and actory and you know hard to the touch and i i, I it'll be nice to see him he's done it occasionally but mm-hmm. it'll nice to see him again do something that's a little bit more i don't know hopefully softer and more accessible yeah um all right david how about you yeah come on come on is definitely at the top especially because it's also a, a telluride world premiere um i really like 20th century women and i think uh, the the Mike Mills hive has been eagerly awaiting a new movie from him, and this one being, like Richard said, a little bit smaller in scale, um, with Joaquin Phoenix in a different kind of role than we've seen him of late, uh, is one that I'm I'm watching out for. And I think more broadly, Benedict Cumberbatch has two movies at Telluride uh, between the the off the much hyped on this podcast power of the dog he also has the electrical life of louis wayne i think i'm yeah. pronouncing that right um which amazon is distributing uh this one was kind of circling last season as well from what i remember uh, it's got claire foy and a couple others uh notable actors in in supporting roles um it doesn't have a ton of buzz on it but um i am curious to see you know particularly if cumberbatch can exit this festival period with a really strong, um, you know, positioning for best actor, uh, likely for power, but just kind of having one of those like Chastain-esque years where he's got a bunch of projects and finally gets to move forward a little bit. Um, he's been nominated once before for the imitation game, but this feels like kind of a breakthrough year for him. Um, so we, we shall see. Um, and there's a couple films, like you mentioned, Katie, that, um, have been playing around for a little while now. Um, I really liked A Hero from Ashkar Farhadi, which debuted at Cannes and won the grand prize there. Um, and Flea, which I just loved at Sundance. And I know Neon is really hoping that that movie can pick up steam and, and go pretty far this season. And, and that's what I'm really, really hoping for, because it's uh, it was one of the best movies I saw uh, back in January. 
Yeah, it's it's really great. And, you know, none of us got to see it with an audience at Sundance, but I feel like an audience could really respond to that. And yeah. and that's what Telluride is going to be so good for, I think, and why so many of these films really wanted to go there is like you were guaranteed an audience. Like a lot of strict COVID testing will make it possible to have a big full size crowd, which I think even now in Toronto, uh, which is usually the big place where you go play for a crowd, it's just unclear how much we'll be able to pack people in there together. And um, it seems like it's going to work out in Telluride really well. Yeah. And, and Telluride audiences are very devoted to the project of the festival. You know, mm. you'll hear people in line talking about like, I saw 12 movies yesterday. And you're like, are there even that many hours in the day? But um, <laughs> it, it's, that is it's, not physically possible. Matt. <laughs> no, so maybe it's more like eight. But but they really like dig in. Um, I think maybe sometimes if you see that many movies in one day, are you really processing anything? I don't know. But and it is, you know, a mix of just like wealthy people who like movies, but also a lot of industry people. It's a short trip from California, relatively speaking. So those audiences are really good uh, little incubators for films and, and a good way to kind of um, in microcosm test like reactions to things. Um, you know, when I think about something like The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, um, I mean, Telluride audience, a, a, a biopic about an artist starring Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, that was like, I think they they made the movie for Telluride. Like, it's like a perfect fit. And so sometimes that can mean that the movie only really breathes at the festival and, and doesn't really like exist well in the outside world. But, or other times it can really be a crucial springboard uh, for a film that might not otherwise have had it. I'm interested, too, in, in Warner Brothers taking King Richard specifically to tell you, right, it's not going to the other fall festivals, at least as of now. And they're kind of splitting um, the resources between this and Dune, which is going to Venice and then um, off to Toronto. Um, you know, King Richard's based on the trailer that Warner Brothers put out looks to be like a, a pretty conventional biopic with a really <laughs> big performance from Will Smith at the center of it. And I'm not sure how it's going to play critically. You know, this is planning a specific kind of flag for that movie that I didn't exactly expect. So. Yeah. It's a nice show of, of confidence. I think the same way that Dune playing at Venice is a show of confidence in that one, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, the thing, think King Richard having Reynaldo Marcus Green behind the camera uh, as director is, I think, makes me more curious about it than I w may, might otherwise be about a kind of standard biopic because he's an interesting filmmaker. He had a movie at Sundance or no Toronto last year called, well, then called good Joe Bell now called Joe Bell. I think it came out already and made $4. Um, but <laughs> and that movie had a lot of attractors. I liked it. I thought it was thoughtfully made uh, for a subject matter that could have been handled really clumsily. Um, and so I'm hoping that that same gentle kind of thoughtful approach uh, is applied to King Richard. Yeah, that movie, I think, became more famous for uh, going viral, for having the same poster, Stillwater, with Matt Damon, of just, like, white guys in hats. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it probably deserved much better than that. Um, David, you mentioned um, Dune, which is a studio movie uh, going to Venice and not to tell you right. And we've, we didn't talk about The Last Duel, which is going to Venice and no other festivals. Uh, it's the first of the two Ridley Scott movies out this fall. It's it's Matt Damon. It's Ben Affleck. It's Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Nicole Holliston are contributed to the script. It's kind of a big mystery box for us at this point. Like, we don't know anyone who's seen it. We're not going to get to see it as far as we know as being trapped in North America as we are. Um, I mean, I really want to hold out hope for it because I think there's a lot of potentially interesting about it. But it feels like they should be bringing it to other festivals. Is that just a really blinkered view of it? That, that's my sense as well. I think this being a Ridley Scott film with some strong actors like Adam Driver and Jodie Comer, um, it, it's a very pedigreed movie. And I think it getting that Venice spot is in part a show of good faith on the part of the studio, if nothing else. But I, The studio, I which not... is... Um... Is it is it 20th century? Is yes, it, it's it's looped it's, in with, with with Disney. It's it's it's, a, it's it's kind of a strange orphan, which is another part of it, I think. Yeah, and I think 
one of the struggles with this movie is that, you know, you have another Ridley Scott film coming that, you know, by all accounts is much buzzier, much more in the awards conversation that being House of Gucci. I have not seen Last Duel or House of Gucci. I really haven't heard much about either, but, you know, all signs seem to be pointing toward the latter as, as more of the play for uh, of the two Ridley Scott films. So I think Last Duel is kind of in an in a difficult position where it's not necessarily a movie that's going to be a big box office play. Um, it's about uh, a woman. It's, it's a three character study told from each of their points of view about a woman, um, her husband and the husband's best friend who the woman accuses of raping her. And it's sort of this <laughs> leads to the last duel, uh, the titular last duel between these two men. And, and, and it, got a lot of backlash when it was first announced, even with Holof Center's involvement. And, you know, it's since been confirmed that she's writing the the point of view of the Jodie Comer character. Um, so it's a very fraught subject matter. It's already very controversial. I don't know that Ridley Scott um, is the director that many feel will, you know, handle it with the most grace. Although it's definitely one, you know, I've, I, from what I understand, it's one that they really worked on handling sensitively, but not to say it's a burn-off at Venice, but I think it may just be more of a one-off that doesn't necessarily indicate any larger aspirations. Hmm. It, it also feels like something that, that would be perhaps more embraced by Europeans. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I, I, I can't quite articulate why, but like, it, you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like certain mores are different uh, in, in Italy and elsewhere in Europe than they are here. Uh, and maybe that was part of the thinking. I don't know. Yeah. And that said, like, I think if there is any play with this movie, from what I understand, Jodie Comer is, um, has, a, has a really you know, meaty part, gets to do a lot. Um, and, and if the film plays better than some are expecting, she could, she could find her way into the best actress conversation. But no, she'll win for Free Guy. <laughs> oh, like Benedict Cumberbatch, multiple options. <laughs> I was just going to bring up Free Guy, thinking about how they're going to release this movie. You know, you're talking about the box office for it, David, because uh, it's a 20th century release, technically owned by Disney now. Um, and Free Guy made a lot of money, famously, or, you know, more money than people expected. So I don't like I wonder, I, I don't think it's going to have the same appeal uh, box office yeah. wise as Free Guy. But I, I do want, you know, Disney is obviously in a, in a period of soul searching about how to put their movies in theaters. So I wonder if this one might be, you know, bring in that, uh, that prestige audience who's vaccinated who will go to the theater. I mean, look at that box office. Free Guy, Candy Man. I mean, it's just... It's <laughs> the glaring. Last Duel has two dudes in it. They're, they're yeah. holding those swords. As long as we'll talk about their beards and hairstyling in a future podcast, that's all I ask. I'm so <laughs> certain we will. Well, we were also, you know, we talked about Annette a few weeks ago, and Adam Driver, you know, has a pretty polarizing performance, but I think a really uh, captivating and committed one. And I think we were all thinking, like, okay, so The Last Duel is going to be his kind of follow-up to that. I don't know. I, I It does feel like he has a potential kind of generate buzz on his own, maybe like Jodie Comer, who is someone everyone has their eye on. So, And he's also I'm... in House of Gucci. So he's got... Right, <laughs> right. He's having, he's having an interesting year. Um, yeah, I, I'm really curious just for what... People are going to think of this one. I, I I really don't have a sense of how the movie pulls off this very delicate subject matter. So I'm definitely curious. Yeah, we'll be watching those Twitter reactions. Uh, we'll get out our Google Translate for Italian uh, to watch how people are responding <laughs> to it from Venice. And to hop back to Telluride one more time as we bounce around our list, um, Rebecca, you did another preview piece on Belfast. Um, we talked about uh, another movie as being a Roma for this year, but Belfast is also a Roma for this year as a uh, black and white uh, memory piece from a big deal director. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really 
good film, but it's going to be hard not to compare it to Roma. You know, it's Kenneth Branagh's story from his childhood. It's in black and white. It's about him and his family and sort of dealing with the violence that broke out in Belfast and and his family's decision to, you know, leave their hometown. And um, it's 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 nice to see something so personal and smaller from Kenneth Branagh, and it has a re- it has some really great performances. Um, and I'm curious to see how it's received at Telluride because I think it's um, really good and and feels very personal, but also really relatable to sort of what a lot of people have gone through in this lockdown and and being you know feeling unsafe to go out into the world. So uh, I can't wait to see it with an audience and sort of see how everyone reacts. And Rebecca, you were suggesting that Katrina Balfe might be one to watch out for um, as she plays the mom in the movie. And she you know, has done really wonderful work on Outlander and has kind of a devoted fan base from that. But this might be a chance for her to, to spread her wings a little bit. Yeah, it's a really strong performance and, and has a lot of emotion behind it. And, and I think if, if people don't know her name, they will after this. So is Branna not doing a thick Russian accent in this one? <laughs> I feel like we've gotten a lot of that from him lately, so I'm excited to... I, is he even in the movie? No, no, he's, he's, no, he's, he's behind. Okay. I'm surprised. I thought yeah. maybe he would try to play somebody, but no. It's it's the nine-year-old version of him. And, and when I was talking to him, I didn't realize that a lot of it is really specifically from his childhood. I thought he had kind of, you know, added some drama to it, but it, it sounds like he had a really interesting childhood uh yeah, so uh, I won't say much more, but it's definitely worth checking out. Um, so maybe let's let's close this out by having you guys make some uh, some predictions, nothing too crazy. Um, but we've kind of talked about some of the people we're really keeping our eye on to to break out uh, or some filmmakers who are going to have a, a good moment. If you want to, like, say one name of someone who you think by this time next week will be um, have, like, risen in profile or, or someone who we're going to be talking about major Oscar buzz for this time next week. Uh, I I was thinking, should I just say Jane Campion? But <laughs> go for it. No, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with a little bit more verse. and I'll say Olivia Coleman. I like that. Uh, I mean, no, there's no one in the world who's rooting against Olivia Coleman at this point in her career. So it's uh, it's exciting why. to see what she can do with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Richard, put your cards down. Well, I think it's interesting that you have potentially two of the biggest front runners for Best Actor, Will Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch, both premiering movies at the same thing within days of yeah. each other. Um, so, and, you know, two performers from very different backgrounds and sort of like career trajectories, um, both arguably in some people's minds, like overdue for that kind of like win. Um, they've both been nominated Smith more than Cumberbatch. So I know, I think I've said it like a million times on this podcast that a great way for Hollywood to be like, movies are back, baby, is to give Will Smith the best actor Oscar this year. Um, (laughs) but Cumberbatch, you know, with two films and, one of them being from a you know really lauded auteur uh, with a lot of marketing money behind it. Maybe he'll come out the victor, but either way, it's going to be interesting to watch them kind of square off. Uh, Rebecca, you want to make a pick? Yeah, Katie, I hope I'm not stealing yours, but I'm going to go Kristen Stewart on this one because I just think if it is, a, you know, a really strong performance that feels different than her other work, I just think... There, there's no way she's not going to be a, a huge part of the conversation. And, and there are a lot of people who want her to become that sort of Oscar, you know, actress. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, it's I was a huge gonna... risk that could pay off, you know, yeah. and I think that's really exciting. 
Yeah. And you think how she won the French equivalent of an Oscar like six years ago for Claude Stills Maria. Like you you have France recognize one of our homegrown talents before us. Like there's only so long you can let that go on before yep. you have to. to She's to the new Jerry Lewis is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Sorry, Kristen Stewart. We don't mean it. Um, Rebecca, I was going to crib from you for mine. So it's fine. Um, but, you know, neither of us have seen Cyrano. But you had been talking about how maybe Haley Bennett is someone to watch out for because she kind of like Kristen Stewart. People have been rooting her for her for a long time. Uh, she Last year, she had a kind of like pretty small scale hit with Swallow, but the people who saw it really loved it. Um, so it seems like if Cyrano becomes a good, um, gets well-reviewed, like it would be a good showcase for her. She's kind of the woman in the middle of this um, classic Cyrano de Bergerac triangle. So uh, I'm rooting for Haley Bennett to finally have her year this year. Oh, and Kirsten Dunst, too. That would be exciting. Yeah. Um, if, yeah, yeah. If that's her, that's if, a better one. If power, her yeah. role in Your Year of the Dog is like, or sorry, I keep saying it. Power of the dog. <laughs> is, Justice for Molly Shannon. Know, meaty enough, you know. Um, it, you know, maybe. And all, again, a lot of marketing money. You know, they have, they can they can they can run many simultaneous campaigns. Netflix can. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I would be excited about that. Our podcast friends at Who Weekly have recently had a very controversial discussion about whether Kirsten Dunst was still a them or a who or has become <gasps> oh. a who. Oh no! Um, and I I think I fall on the them side, but this will hopefully reaffirm her status as one of her generation's greats. I think if you're over 30, you, uh, Kirsten Dunst can never be a who. Like, that's exactly. just not, it's yeah. like baked into your <laughs> DNA. <laughs> Um, I mean, Jesse Plemons also empowered the dog. Like, you know, having read the book, like, I don't know if that role is uh, as juicy as some of the other ones we're talking about. But I was talking with friends recently about he's been in like eight Best Picture nominees in the past nine years, like some crazy, crazy streak. Yeah. So it's kind of only a matter of time before he gets recognition himself. Killers of the Flower Moon. It's, it's coming. It's coming. At least Taylor Kitsch got uh, John Carter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that does it for this week's show. As I said, next week, uh, we'll be back to debrief on all of these festivals and uh, look ahead to Toronto, which is uh, coming right around the bend. It is festival season. It is a really exciting time of year. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at Vanity Fair. You can find a lot of coverage from all of these festivals from these guys, as well as Cassie DaCosta, who will be reporting on some of Venice from afar for us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And Joanna is that Joe wrote this. Uh, you can also sign up to text us and receive texts from us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text us at 213-513-7215. We'll maybe try to keep you guys a little bit more up to date on all the festival news before next week's episode comes out. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best prediction for this year's best picture goes to Katie Rich. A viral Negroni video. 